Um, by all means. I'm uh, very glad to be with you again. I'm broadcasting to you on Radio Richards. That is, I'm joining the Zoom call from Action Claire's home. And uh, let me just get rid of that in the middle of the screen. There we go. And uh, well, you know, I'm going to miss Zoom in a funny sort of way when when we're not utilising it quite as much as we do. I, I found it very refreshing to be able to preach without having to bother to put trousers on. It's, it's been a really quite enjoyable. Uh, I'm joking, of course. I am. I am fully clothed, but it's uh, strange just seeing each other head and shoulders as we are, isn't it? Now, you are currently engaged on Sunday evenings in a series of studies looking into Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia. And uh, I very much hope that you have realised by now that the Galatian church to which Paul was writing was in the protest of being hijacked, or at least it was at serious risk of being hijacked. And the hijackers were those who were teaching. Now, note this. They... People were teaching that what Jesus had done on the cross was very good, indeed, that it was essential, but that it was fundamentally not quite good enough. That was the teaching that was being put out there by the people whom Paul refers to as the circumcision group or the circumcision party, that what Jesus had done on the cross was very nearly good enough to give God a basis on which he could put us right with himself, but it wasn't quite sufficient, and it required to be topped up by us as we applied ourselves to keep God's law and to obey the law of Moses. And of course, Paul would have no truck with nonsense like that. That error dogged his footsteps for the course of his entire ministry, and it unpicked or picked away at the churches which he planted and the work that he was doing. And the Galatian church was in the process of being hijacked by people who were teaching that sort of thing. Now, it's very important that we note this. We're looking tonight at the passage in Galatians chapter 2, and I think we're going to look at verses 11 to 16 in a few minutes' time. But we need to see where these verses fit into what Paul has to say in the bigger picture. Paul is refuting the teaching of the circumcision party, in short, the people who said that it was necessary not only to believe in Jesus, but also to keep the law that Moses had received from God and passed on to the people. And in refuting their teaching, Paul thinks it will be helpful for his readers if he recounts an anecdote about one of the occasions when he and Peter were together and when, in effect, they bumped into each other. He's not telling tales on Peter. Um, but he is using this anecdote because he thinks it will be important and instructive for them. Now, hold on to that thought and let me say this. I suspect that no matter how accomplished we are individually, how comfortable in our own skin we may be, how competent we are in what we do, I suspect that there is probably somebody or each one of us in whose presence, perhaps because of whose scholarship or gifting, or experience or personality, there is probably somebody for each one of us in whose company we feel, if not exactly intimidated, just a little bit less sure of ourselves. And someone whom we really do not feel we can we can chastise or reprimand or, or 
or, or rebuke or criticize in any way. And I suspect that in the days of the early church, Peter probably was that man for many people. He had been, at least until the Apostle Paul came on the scene, he had been the, the most notable and influential and probably effective Christian leader. And I suspect some people would think twice before taking on Peter one-on-one -on -one and rebuking him publicly, which is what Paul goes on to tell us that he did. Peter was, of course, not the only big hitter in the church. As I say, the Apostle Paul had been converted and he'd uh, gone away for three years to reflect on the, the, the message and uh, on the faith. And then he met with Peter and the elders of the Jerusalem church for 15 days, we're told, in the earlier part of Galatians, when they compared notes. And then they met again in Acts chapter 15, we're told, where they stood shoulder to shoulder in the fight against the circumcision party. And we're going to read about their third encounter, um, which went rather less agreeably than the previous two had. Paul had come to the party late, but uh, he very quickly proved to be the greater intellect and indeed, I think, had an even wider and more influential ministry. So we're going to read now from Galatians chapter 2 about the third meeting between Paul and Peter that we know of, which unfortunately was less happy and less united and less agreeable than their previous two encounters. Uh, Peter, just to join up the dots, has come to Antioch. Antioch was significant. This was a significant visit because Antioch was the first primarily non-Jewish Christian congregation. And the Apostle Peter has come to visit them, and probably initially all things went well. And then note this, Peter's old nemesis, fear of man, gate-crashed the party with potentially disastrous results. So I'm going to read now from Galatians in chapter 2. Now we understand the danger of a Galatian church within and the connection between Paul and Peter, and now we read about their third encounter. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. When Peter, writes Paul, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I mean, this is serious stuff, friends. Uh, Paul says Peter was playing the hypocrite. This is Peter he's talking about. He was not living in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Very serious stuff. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish custom? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, that really needs to be in, in air quotes. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, a number of things to note there. First of all, these people who thought that what Jesus had done was good, but not quite good enough, we read they had come from James. Some men came from James. Now, this is James, who was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Let's be very clear. James was a true believer in Jesus Christ, albeit a very strict and a very Jewish one. But James had at times past spoken out against the circumcision party. James had stood shoulder to shoulder with Peter and with Paul in the council which met at Jerusalem and had stood side by side with them in refuting the teaching of the circumcision party. So my point such as it is, is this. Let's not read too much into this. We're told they came from James. That does not necessarily mean that James had sent them. And it certainly doesn't necessarily mean that James endorsed the teaching which they were bringing. He had spoken out against the idea that people needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Well, their presence, these men who purportedly came from James, their presence seriously discomforted Peter. And as I say, his old nemesis, the problem which had dogged his heels and caused him to flee when Jesus was arrested and read his head again when he was confronted by the serving girl in the, in the high priest's courtyard. Nemesis was fear of man and it, it raised its head again. And it's worth noting that Peter previously had preached this in Acts chapter 10, that God has no favourite. Peter had preached that God accepts people from all nations. Peter had preached that he should call no one unclean whom God had cleansed. That's what Peter really believed. But when these circumcision party members came, he backed off from that and he reverted into hypocrisy. And he so upset and confused the Gentile believers at Antioch and led the Jewish converts in hypocrisy as well, that even Barnabas was affected. Now, that's the problem when a high-profile leader, or even a low-profile leader, lets the side down and deserts the truth. It doesn't stop with him or her. It spreads to other people, and it affects them as well. And so St Paul felt that he had no option but to stop this dangerous teaching and this hypocrisy in its tracks. Paul wouldn't have error taught or supported by people, no matter how high profile they were, no matter how influential they were. Now, usually when a couple of Christians fall out about something or don't see eye to eye about something, um, there is a procedure which Jesus outlined, which they can and should follow. It uh, roughly goes like this. You, you go and see the individual with whom you are at odds, and you have a frank and courteous private discussion with them. That's step one. If that doesn't bring about the desired result of repentance and reconciliation, then you go again, said Jesus, and this time you take an arbiter or witness with you. And if it still doesn't bring about the desired result, 
then it may be time to go public and to involve the rest of the body of Christ, the church, in what's going on. That's the normal procedure for resolving difficulties and disagreements between believers. But that's not what was going on here. The situation was not the same. This was not some personal issue or some private grievance. The truth of the gospel was being publicly denied and the work of God was being sabotaged by one of the most high profile influential Christian leaders of the day. And I want us to notice not just what Paul did when he was confronted with the situation, but what he didn't do. And if you're making notes and looking at you, I can see that most of you have wisely decided not to. But if you're making those, then there are six things I want to underline which Paul did not do in this situation. And it's important because they're things which I suspect some of us might have been inclined to do. Number one, uh, he did not say, oh, well, we'll just we'll just not ask Peter to come and preach in Antioch again. We'll just sweep it under the carpet for now. We simply won't ask Peter to come and preach again. And that's how we'll get around this situation. Um, he didn't do that. He grasped the nettle. Listen, some problems in a church between believers, actually, if you leave them alone, often they go away. But if a problem is error, it does not go away. It just goes underground and it resurfaces at a later time. Anyway, Paul did not just say, well, when he's gone, I'll put things straight. We won't ask Peter back to preach in Antioch again. Secondly, as far as we can tell, he did not lose his temper. This whole situation sounds very confrontational, but there's no reason to believe that Paul spoke with any anger or animosity towards Peter. Thirdly, he did not dig up Peter's track record of getting things wrong. And Peter's track record of getting things wrong was fairly impressive, wasn't it? But Paul did not resort to that and start digging up the mistakes of the past. Fourthly, he did not lobby other people to get them on side and form some sort of alliance against Peter. Fifthly, he did not go behind Peter's back and share the situation with others just for prayer. You know what I mean? In confidence, just for prayer. He didn't do that. And sixthly, he did not fudge the issue or sweep it under the table. You see, this issue could not have been of greater importance and it needed to be dealt with urgently and it needed to be dealt with publicly because verse 14 tells us it was about the truth of the gospel and there couldn't be a more serious issue than the truth of the gospel. Well, then what is the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel is this, that the gospel is the power of God, wrote Paul in Romans 1, the power of God to save those who believe, all those who believe, Jews and non-Jews, can all be put right with God on the same basis. As someone said, as people used to say years ago, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There was no advantage in gospel terms in being a Jew. There was no disadvantage in gospel terms in being a Gentile. There was no advantage in being a Gentile and no disadvantage in being a Jew. There was only one way in which people could be put right with God, and that was not by behaving 
It wasn't by keeping the law of Moses. It was by believing. Romans 1.17 tells us this. In the gospel, a righteousness is revealed from God that is by faith from first to last. Let me paraphrase Romans 1.17 for you. What Paul is saying there is this. In the gospel, a way of being right with God is revealed, a way which does not depend on how we behave, but on what or in whom we believe. That is the truth of the gospel. But people can be saved, but all people have to come by the same route. Everyone has to come by faith in Christ. The truth of the gospel is that forgiveness of sins, eternal life, gift of the Holy Spirit does not have to be earned. It is not a reward for the keeping of God's law. It is not given as a reward for observing rites and sacraments and ceremonies. It is not given because we live by the Ten Commandments or by the Sermon on the Mount. These things are given not because we observe, writes Paul in verse 16, not because we keep the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, Paul had underlined this. He said, if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, speaking to the jailer at Philippi, what must I do to be saved? He was asked, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, was the answer. And later in that passage, we read that when the jailer believed, immediately that night, Paul took him and what? And baptised him. He didn't take him and circumcise him. He took him and baptised him because the man had been put right with God, not by keeping the law of Moses, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So that is the truth of the gospel, that there's only one way to be put right with God, and it's the way of faith. And that wasn't actually a new teaching, though. In fact, to be blunt, there only ever had been one way to be put right with God. Do you realise that? The law was never the way by which people could be put right with God. The only way was the Abraham way. That is the way of faith. And that's what Paul is teaching. And that's what Peter was, was, was no longer presenting. Instead, he was, although he lived like a Gentile in large measure, he reverted to living like a Jew because he was afraid of the members of the circumcision party. Well, I, I found myself wondering, how did Peter feel about being thus publicly challenged and rebuked? I wonder what the effect it had on his relationship with Paul going forward. We, we don't know, of course. But about 16 years later, the Apostle Peter wrote two letters of his own. And they, alongside Paul's letters, became part of our New Testament. Listen now to just some of the things Peter wrote. This is some years after he has been publicly challenged and rebuked by Paul there at Antioch. In 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter wrote, in his great mercy, God has given us new birth, a living hope, an inheritance in heaven. And he has done this for us who, through faith, are shielded by God's great power. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, we are receiving the end result of our faith, not of our works. That is the salvation of our souls. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he talks about what brings us to God. He says, Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? 
to give us a fighting chance to go into heaven if we top up what Jesus has done by our own efforts? Not at all. Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So you see, some years after being confronted by Paul about the truth of the gospel, Peter is actually teaching the gospel and the truth of the gospel in his letters. And works and the law of Moses and circumcision doesn't even get a look in in Peter's letters. It seems as if he had learned his lesson. I believe Peter's hypocrisy on this occasion was an aberration. It was a, a blip, um, a brief interlude in his life. I believe he knew the truth. He returned to the truth. He preached the truth. He lived the truth. And eventually, of course, probably just a year after writing his letters, he sealed his testimony with his own life. And it's worth noting, as I draw to a close, that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, he wrote to other people about Paul. And he wrote without any rancor, without any evident uh, uh, bad attitude. And this is what he said about Paul and his teaching. Our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters. His letters contain some things which are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures, to their destruction. Now, Peter, writing after being publicly rebuked by Paul, writes those words, and I want you to see there are four things he says about Paul, or shows about Paul, in those words. First of all, he spoke with affection about Paul. He calls him my dear brother or our dear brother. No trace of any lingering resentment. Secondly, he acknowledges the God-given wisdom with which Paul writes. He acknowledges that Paul's teaching actually comes from God. He says his letters have God-given wisdom. Thirdly, he admits that sometimes Paul's letters can be hard to understand but that they are true. They are true. And fourthly, he points out that the people who really struggle with what Paul has written are those who are ignorant, unstable, and trying to justify their own behaviour. That's all there in 1 Peter. And of course, that could be said about Peter's letters or James' letter or John's letter or Paul's letters. People who are determined to misunderstand the scripture and, and make them suit their own purposes and agendas will always find a way to misunderstand the scripture, no matter who writes it and to distort it. If people are trying to impose what they think on what God has said, then they will miss the truth and eventually pay a hard price for doing so. So I think kudos to Peter here. I mean, Paul, in some sense, is the hero for standing up to him. But Peter is to be commended for the way which he appears to respond. He bore no grudge. He learned his lesson. He proclaimed the truth. He ran his race. And maybe no more than a year later, he sealed his testimony with his blood. And he was saved. Not because he died for Christ. Not even because he lived for Christ. Not even because he preached Christ. But because he believed in Christ. Because that is the truth of the gospel, that we are put right with God, not by behavior, but by belief.
That was the truth which Paul had to contend for at Antioch, face to face with Peter. Now, I hope you remember that little list or some of them, the things that, that Paul did not do, because that's very important practically for us as a church going forward, because there will inevitably be disagreements and there will sometimes be disagreements over doctrine. And it's important that we understand that some things can be resolved and should be resolved in quite a confidential way. But there are times when we have to be prepared to contend for the truth, when the truth of the gospel is at stake. That needs to be dealt with urgently and it needs to be dealt with with candor and with courage. The issue must not be fudged and things must not be swept under the carpet because error which is not dealt with does not go away. It merely goes underground and comes back at an inconvenient time to trouble us. Let's pray together now. Father, as we move forward as a church, we pray you will help us always to be candid with each other, but also to be kind. To speak the truth in love to one another and to receive the truth from each other. We thank you for preserving the example that you have in scripture of even great godly people who just for a little while let you down and let the side down and turn from the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you there's always a way back. As we used to think years ago in a gospel context, there's a way back to God from a dark path system. We thank you, Lord, that that is true for us as believers as well. When we come back to the cross in repentance and uh, we know that you're always there, ready to, to meet with us and to forgive us, as you did, as you forgave Peter for his damaging hypocrisy on this occasion. So we thank you, Lord, for your word to us this morning and this evening, where you'll help us to live in the light of it, to put it into practice, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends, for your fellowship today. We've uh, enjoyed very much being with you, and uh, look forward to seeing you again as the Lord leads. Thank you, Jonathan.